my name is Chuck um, and uh, uh, Chuck F to distinguish me from other Chucks in North America. We don't have Chucks in Australia, so I'm the only one in Australia that I know of. And um, I'm a recovering alcoholic and addict. Um, and um, it's four o'clock on Tuesday afternoon here. Um, I've been sober since March 19th, 1977. I got sober in Boston, Massachusetts, where I grew up uh, and where I um, went to one of my schools. I got my master's degree in science at uh, Suffolk University in Boston um, and actually took a summer course at Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts, across the river from Boston. Um, and I moved to California uh, within my first year of sobriety, even though they told me I shouldn't. And I stayed there for four years. And then uh, in 1981, I moved to Australia and I moved first to Sydney, Australia. And then I moved to the capital of Australia in 1985. Um, and that gives you a little bit of a, a geographical background. And I've been here ever since. I'm actually in a suburb of uh, the capital city of Canberra. Um, and uh, uh, I'm one kilometer from the, um, from the border of uh, Canberra, uh, the Australian capital territory. Um, a little bit of my background, I grew up in Boston. My mother was an alcoholic. Uh, my father may have been, but he didn't drink. And any time he did drink, he got stinking drunk. Um, come from a, I'm a CIA, a Catholic Irish uh, American. Uh, I have three citizenships now. I have a Republic of Ireland citizenship and a passport. I have an Australian passport uh, being uh, a, a naturalized citizen here and having grown up in the United States, I have an American passport. I vote in California uh, by absentee ballot, much to the chagrin of some political leaders um, in America. And um, uh, in growing up, I um, uh, always was quite skeptical of anything that religious people said. And uh, growing up in an Irish Catholic uh, neighborhood, uh, uh, I was exposed to lots of religious dogma. And then I moved to a, uh, my family moved to a Jewish neighborhood and I saw a whole completely different uh, outlook upon life. Most of the Jewish people I knew were humanist Jews. That is, they were uh, not religious, but they had a, um, a heritage of Judaism and maybe um, observed the Jewish holidays. But other than that, um, I knew one family that I always used to go on Friday nights for chicken dinner, because at that time it was, you would go to hell if you were a Catholic and ate meat, except there was a loophole in canon law, which said that if you are at a non-believers, uh, a non-Christian home, Rather than insult the uh, host, you could eat uh, meat if they were serving meat. And so I used to always go to chicken dinners um, on Friday nights um, with my Jewish friends. And um, growing up in uh, that neighborhood with all my friends being Jewish, I, I had a completely different viewpoint, and especially a humanist viewpoint when I was of age. 
Um, I joined uh, the American Humanist Association and, uh, uh, and as subsequent to that, I joined the Humanist Society of Friends, which was uh, an offshoot of Quakers for people who didn't believe in Christianity, but who believed in humanism. And um, they had, uh, the Humanist Society of Friends had a way that you could become a clergy equivalent. And so uh, under the aegis of um, American Humanist Association, uh, I became a celebrant and a chaplain after going through uh, trainings uh, with the humanists. And uh, eventually when I came to Australia, um, a religious um, chaplain found out about that and um, said, why don't you be a chaplain at this hospital? You, you visit some people uh, from your fellowship, um, meaning AA, when they were in hospital. And he said, you're, you're here kind of frequently. And I was there to, when AA people uh, were in hospital. And he said, why don't you become our humanist chaplain? And, um, and, you know, you have the credentials, the Humanist Society of New South Wales, of which I was a member and I'm now a life member, uh, card carrying member, um, said, uh, we will ensure you um, until the ACT government, the um, Australian Capital Territory government ensures you. And um, they supported me all the way through the 17 years that I was the atheist chaplain, the humanist chaplain at Canberra Hospital, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, so in um, St. Patrick's Day of um, 1977, um, being a drinker every day of my life from the time I was 16 or 17, I, I drank virtually every day. And um, I uh, threw up every day. And in fact, when I used to go into the bars, I used to drink at a mafia bar, uh, which at that time was called Father's. Um, uh, I would the bartender would say, what's up, Chuck, whenever I came in. And I, my standard reply was, don't say up, Chuck, to a guy who's just about to drink to excess. And I was quite familiar with hugging various names of uh, porcelain toilets in various uh, establishments. I used to drink in Cheers. And I find it ironic that um, for most of my AA life, um, uh, Ted Danson as the non-drinking bartender in the fictional Cheers, which is based upon a real life pub uh, in uh, Boston, uh, in the center of Boston, basically, Back Bay. Um, uh, that Cheers, um, I, it was set up exactly like it was uh, pretty much um, in real life. I'd be many, many years sober and I'd turn on the TV and then I was back to where I was drinking when I was a drunk, when I was an active drunk. Um, and once, ahead of, once again, I'm sort of getting ahead of myself. Uh, so I drank um, to excess uh, every day, uh, did drugs as well. I won't bring in that, um, that too much here. And I sold drugs uh, to finance my stuff. I eventually ended up uh, living in a squat, uh, which is what we call it here, a vacant house. Um, I was virtually homeless. I was living um, um, in a, a three floor walk up that didn't have um, uh, any rent. I wasn't paying any rent. It was owned by the city. 
and um, uh, for back taxes. And uh, uh, eventually the wrecking ball came and I was drunk and I heard the, the Puerto Rican kids from downstairs with their Spanish accent saying, Senor, Senor, el, el, um, the El Loco Gringo is on the third floor. Um, you know, don't, don't put the wrecking ball through it. He still lives there. And um, they gave me something like a half an hour to get out uh, while they went on smoker when they went off to have a cigarette. And I lowered stuff down. I had a broken arm at the time or a broken leg. I can't remember which. And I lowered by rope uh, my possessions down in front of the wrecking ball um, swinging arm. And um, um, me and the cat went to find a place to live. I often slept in, um, I was homeless. I often slept in parked cars that um, in those days, 1977, you had a, um, a tab that you pulled up and in the door of your car or you pressed down to lock it and um, uh, I would go up and down streets um, looking for back doors or front doors of cars that um, were unlocked and I would sleep in the back of them uh, in the back seat and one time I woke up and somebody was on their way to work and had gotten in and the radio turned on when they turned on the ignition I dropped down to the to the hump um, in the in the back of the um, uh, in the back of the car, and when they parked, um, I eventually and they didn't see me in the rearview mirror. They didn't hear me because the radio was on, and um, uh, I ended up in some Raytheon, I think it was some sort of a um, parking lot that was security locked. And I got out and I was unshaven and. In my drinking clothes, I didn't. I wasn't dressed up for work, obviously. And um, um, I went to the gate uh, um, alongside the fence, and um, the guard, uh, the guy that let you in um, or checked you in, um, in security, um, said, "Where's your car?" And I said, oh, "I got a ride to to work today." And he looked at me and he, he said, "Well, what, where are you going?" And I said, "Well, I just got sacked. I just got fired." Um, and um, where's the nearest bus? And he says, I don't know. Um, and so I just wandered the streets a bit until I found uh, a bus stop and um, um, telling somebody that I had just gotten um, uh, fired, got me out of the place. And he, he looked at me like, of course you got fired because you you don't look like you were ready for work and you look hung, hung over. So, um, uh, I, hold on, I got a um, uh, message I'm going to send them. And somebody just called me and I'm on my phone. Um, there we go. And um, so, um, uh, yeah, so I drank every day. I, um, I got into lots of trouble. I hung out with um, friends that were all drinkers. I um, uh, was, I ended up homeless. And that's probably enough of uh, my, what it was like. Uh, what happened was I went to, uh, I, I had a job that I got fired from and um, uh, it was the easiest job in the world. All I had to do, um, because it was a, a, through some sort of a state federal grant um, for a sort of halfway or a three quarter way house for people who were um, leaving um, 
some secure facility like a jail or something like that. I was at top of the Charlestown, um, Boston um, YMCA, the top three floors. And they had the contract, they sent in a maid for each floor to make the beds, but they had no, they had staff of which I was one. And, but they had no people that were in the three quarter way house uh, facility. And um, all I had to do for the job was get there before noon and sign in. And then I could leave afternoon, um, anytime, at least a minute afternoon or 10 minutes afternoon or half an hour after midday um, and sign out. And I couldn't get there on time. I could not get there on time. I'd be, whenever I did, I was hungover and they fired me from that job. Um, I went to, somebody told me I could collect welfare, um, unemployment, insurance, uh, and at that time in Massachusetts, um, you had to go and show up and uh, be interviewed. And there was a mean lady, uh, as I was sitting waiting, I watched her, it was open plan, and uh, she was um, not giving unemployment insurance to anybody that didn't comply with her strict things. And there was an easygoing lady on another desk and I got the easygoing lady. She had the uh, serenity prayer on her desk. She may have been a member of AA or Al-Anon or some other 12-step thing. And she said, look, you got fired because you were um, drinking on the job and you couldn't because you have alcoholism. And um, I said, yeah, well, um, she said, they can't do that. That's a government job. Government jobs have to treat you as having an illness. So she called them up and they confirmed that they didn't want me back, that I was a drunk. And she gave me um, welfare. She gave me um, the dole, the unemployment insurance. And um, she advised me along with the doctors at the Harvard Medical, which I still had, because I had been employed and that was the, the health insurance that came with the, um, with the job. They said at Harvard Medical that, um, Harvard Medical Insurance, that um, I was um, not eating. I was um, drinking all the time. I thought eating was a bag of peanuts in a Slim Jim. Um, and so um, uh, they said that I wasn't going to last long. I probably only had a few months to live and that the only hope for me was to go to AA. And they didn't want me in any programs because um, they said I would ruin it for the others. And I went to my uh, first meeting. It was a whole in my neighborhood. They told me to the doctors told me to go and they gave me the name of a meeting right down the street from me. I went and there was a whole bunch of old men, one good looking woman. Uh, they were all talking about living under the bridges and sleeping in the reeds. And um, I thought, well, the good looking woman couldn't be an alcoholic. She had brought her grandfather there. And so I went back to the doctors and uh, said, look, that's not for me. They're talking all about God. They're talking about living under bridges. I, I don't live under a bridge. I live in a, a vacant house. Uh, I'm better than that. And they said, look, um, maybe you should go to um, the young people's meeting outside of Harvard Square. Young people at that time were anybody under the age of 35. I was 33 at the time. So you can figure out how old I am. I'm just turned 78. I'll save you the arithmetic. And um, at that second meeting, I heard the promises from page 83 and 84 of the big book 
Um, if we are painstaking about the stage of our development, we're going to be amazed. Before we are halfway through, we're going to know new freedom and a new happiness, will not regret the past, wish to shut the door on it. Um, selfishness and self-seeking will slip away. Um, no matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will um, um, be of use to our fellows, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And um, these will all, are the extravagant promises? We think not, they will always materialize if we work for them. And I was just blown away because that's all the things that I was looking for at the bottom of the bottles and cans and glasses that I was drinking out of, drinking alcohol out of. And um, at the end of the meeting, I said, uh, I went up to some people, mostly women who were talking in a knot as people do after meetings. And um, they were talking about the promises. And I, I, I said, I stood there and I said, that, that, that was just amazing. And this one woman said, um, that, I said, that was quite impressive, those, the reading of the promises. And um, is that like a guarantee? And one woman said, uh, it is after you do step nine. And this other woman said to me, that's not true, Chuck. You are entitled to each one of those promises uh, if you look for them. Uh, at from the moment you come to AA, you will start to be amazed before you're halfway through. Selfishness, self-seeking will slip away. You know, you'll stop regretting the past and, and um, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and um, then they had an argument about whether it came at step nine or whether um, you were entitled to the things. And I just absorbed what they were saying vaguely. And... Um, um, I said, I, I, I would make that as the benefits. I, as far as I could see, those would seem to me to be the benefits for AA. So if there was ever a title for this um, sharing, uh, it, what I intend to talk about is the, um, for me, the benefits of AA. They don't stop at page 83 and 84, obviously. I have over 44 years, 10 months, three weeks, I think, and something like 1,600 and 393 days or something like that, of one day at a time. First of all, I haven't given up drinking. I just don't drink one day at a time. For me, that's my secret. I, I couldn't give up drinking for a week, never mind um, 44 years, uh, over 44 years. Um, I, I wouldn't have been able to do that. I just don't drink today. And tomorrow, people may see me coming out of the local pubs thinking drunk. It's certainly possible. I realize that. One of the reasons, there's a big argument in AA about, um, it's a, sort of an affectionate argument in many circles about whether we are recovered or recovering. And I always say that I'm recovering because I want to consider myself in process. I don't believe that I've arrived. I don't believe that I've stopped learning. Um, I, just to give you an example of that, you know, one of the principles of AA is honesty. Um, it's uh, to, one of the deep part of that principle is to be honest with oneself. And they told me eventually that that was the big part of uh, first step that recognizing that I was powerless, not over everything, 
But over alcohol, if I took the cap off the bottle, uh, opened the um, opened the beer can, or um, you know drank, uh, took the cork out of the wine bottle, um, that once I I put some alcohol into me, I was powerless. But I could be powerful. I could walk past a liquor store, and look in the window of it. I could watch commercials on TV, or on in the movies, and. Um, um, and think, gee, wouldn't that be interesting to have a drink again? And, um, and I could stop myself by saying, well, not today. And that, that little bit of power about today, just between now and the time I get to sleep, was all the power I needed. Um, but as soon as I took the first drink, I'd be powerless to be able to stop. That I had to be um, honest with myself and then with others in AA, certainly, and then with therapists, and then with lawyers, if I was stuck, stuck with the law, uh, and then with anybody that it was gonna help me with my spiritual life. And I'll talk about spiritual a little bit later, as far as a humanist atheist goes. Um, and um, one of the things that I recently learned was somebody said, Chuck, it doesn't say honesty, it says rigorous honesty. And the principle isn't the honesty. I came to this conclusion myself in my own head when somebody said it's rigorous honesty, Chuck. Um, I thought about it and I thought that's the principle. The principle isn't honesty. The principle is rigorous honesty. That means not exact for me. It means for me not exaggerating when I could just let the plain truth be the plain truth. Uh, for me, uh, it doesn't mean cash register honesty. It doesn't mean, um, you know, when I'm traveling on the road in my, my Tesla uh, Model 3, which just a tap on the accelerator can make me go speeding, um, that I have to watch my monitor in my car, um, my speedometer, if you will. And um, uh, I have to look at what the car says that the speed limit on my section of highway is, and then I have to do that speed limit or less. Uh, that's the limit I'm supposed to be going. And, um, and rigorous honesty is being honest with myself about not violating the law, even though nobody's watching. Uh, and not only when there's a cop or a speed camera or whatever, um, you know, down the road. So uh, this, at 44 years, that was to me, was my, you know, one of my learnings, one of my re revelations. And so, um, you know, on page 85, it talks about other benefits of AA, um, besides, you know, I'm gonna learn how to live my life. One of the um, benefits that it talks about um, on page 85 of the big book is that um, I will be in a position of neutrality, that I will recoil from alcohol as if by fire, as if it was like a hot stove. Um, and um, I'm, uh, as a, uh, I'm not only, as a humanist, I'm not only a, 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 been a chaplain in a hospital for 17 years, 19 years actually, um, and got appreciation for it, being the atheist chaplain. But also uh, I'm a civil marriage celebrant. And um, down through the years, I've um, been the marriage officiant in over 1,236 weddings. Now that's, um, you know, thousands of couples um, 
and other people who counted on me to be there on time, to not be drunk, to not be slurring my words, uh, to not be mixing up my names uh, of who's who and what's what, um, and to putting in their legal paperwork. And at the same time, I've made over a quarter of a million Australian dollars, dollars um, doing that for people and, and putting in, as I say, the, the legal stuff into births, deaths, and marriages, or as some countries or jurisdictions have it, the Bureau of Vital Statistics, um, and changed people's status uh, by being a, the um, representative of the, in my case, the Commonwealth of Australia government under the Commonwealth Attorney General. Um, I'm the representative of the Humanist Celebrant Network and have been for uh, over 20 years with the Commonwealth Attorney General. And twice a year, I sit down with the Attorney General of Australia um, or his or her representatives. And I can't be drunk at that. I can't be stoned at that. I can't be out of my mind at that. Um, so for me, um, there's, there's lots and lots of benefits. It's not just the good health that I was on the verge of losing um, when I was um, drinking to excess. It's not just the um, relationships. My parents uh, had thrown me out of the house. My parents um, and um, brothers and sisters, my brother and sister, both had, all of them had disowned me. My relatives didn't talk to me. My brother would no longer loan me money, uh, which he never got paid back for until I made amends. Um, the relationships that I lost, the work that I lost, the employment that I lost by being drunk and, and drugged, um, the, the, the people that didn't want anything more to do with me, uh, even some of the drinkers that I drank with didn't want anything to do with me because I was, uh, when I sold dope, um, I, I sold what we say in Australia is oregano, which in America is oregano, um, which you know is a leafy substance. I would go and buy some oregano and um, sell it as if it was Maui Waui from, uh, from Hawaii. Um, when I did sell real marijuana uh, and other and pills that I stole from people's um, medicine cabinets, when I'd walk them home to, for their safety and then say, I gotta take a, a, I gotta do a whiz, can I use your toilet? And then I go into their medicine cabinet, as many of us do. And I would steal half their pills. And then I would sell them in the bars uh, for money. Um, when people found out that I would steal uh, from them, um, as well as from um, people that I didn't know, and when I'd sell short, um, when I was supposed to be selling good stuff, I'd roll good stuff and let them smoke that. And then when they were stoned with the good stuff, I'd sell them the oregano. Not a good thing to be doing. People were after me with guns uh, and knives. One, one lady, I looked in the mirror at the bar and she had a pair of scissors and she was about to put it in my back. And luckily she was as drunk and stoned as I was. And all I did is I moved to the side and it went into the, the scissors went into the bar, so much so that she could hardly get it out. And people up and down the bar saying, you see that? And that gal just tried to steer. She died of alcoholism and drug addiction. Um, so, you know, my, my life wasn't a very nice life. And um, 
when I got to AA, um, what happened to me is um, I started working the steps and um, I had to recognize that I had a problem. Now for me, the first step is upside down. It's a two part step, isn't it? Um, the first step is that um, uh, we admit we're powerless and that, and that our lives have become unmanageable. See, I had to recognize that my life was unmanageable first. And then I had to recognize why, which was that I was powerless over alcohol when I put it into me. Now, I've been sober since my first meeting. I didn't drink after that first old people's meeting. Um, and um, I did myself uh, in time to the second meeting um, at St. Peter's Church in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And, uh, you know, in that second meeting, um, even though I heard the promises, it was a speaker's meeting. And uh, they had uh, a woman who was the 10th anniversary of her selling her child in a pub um, that she had given birth to. Um, and she got several thousand dollars, which she said that she had drank and, and drugged with um, within a month of the several thousand dollars. And at that time, thousands of dollars in 77 in America was worth you know, a lot more than it is now. The, the second guy that impressed me in that second meeting was a guy who's, who's had parked his motorcycle in the foyer of the church and it was leaking oil onto the marble floor of the foyer or whatever, the, the vestibule or whatever the church calls um, that um, part of the, I think they have a baptismal font or something in that part of the church. And when he talked, he said that that, that motorcycle, nobody best touches motorcycle, that he parked it there because he didn't want anybody to steal it. He was a thief and that he had murdered somebody and went to Walpole State Prison where he found AA. Um, he had also killed the guard, which none of the inmates, quote, had ever seen, had seen. There was no CCTV cameras in those days. Um, he had dropped the, um, um, the guard that nobody liked uh, down some sort of, he said, down some sort of, down a tier or uh, down a stairwell or something. And none of the inmates said that they saw him do it. And um, he had killed two people. And... Um, and the yellow license plates and the brooms that he made in Walpole State Prison ended up once he got out with um, that, that he bought that motorcycle. And um, uh, I was very impressed that you could get AA in a prison and come out and still be an aggressive person, but be able to say that you hadn't drank. And um, um, for me, the, 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 some of those benefits of being able to save money by not drinking certainly is one of them. I, I often say to people that um, I would sit taller in my seat at AA meetings the longer I stopped drinking because my wallet would get fatter because I used to piss all my money up against the wall. And, you know, you don't buy beer, you rent it. Um, and... Um, and the other thing I used to say, I still do say with, with people, and especially around St. Patrick's Day, um, which, as I said, two days after St. Patrick's Day is when I got sober, um, eventually got sober, um, was um, the fact that um, uh, I, I joke that Mother Nature, our God, created alcohol to keep the Irish from ruling the world. 
And um, for me, um, it's part of my heritage. It's uh, part of my genetics. I think that uh, my definition of alcoholism is a genetic predisposition to metabolize ethyl alcohol inappropriately. And I certainly did that for um, many, many years. Um, I've one day at a time for over 16,300 and some odd days, um, I haven't had a drink just one day at a time. And just recently, um, one of the, the one day at a time, I always sign off with O-D-D-A-A-T, uh, uh, one day at a time. Um, whenever I do texts on my um, phone to remind myself that it, I only have today. Um, when I, it says practice these principles in all our affairs and one of the, in the 12 step. Um, when I recently was um, by chance um, because I had a blockage in, um, um, in my intestine and they put me through a CAT scan and my local hospital, and by the way, um, all medicine is free here in Australia, um, as it is in Canada and other places. Um, I went up to the hospital and said, I, you know, I've, I've had this pain in my side for a day. Um, the ambulance people said I should probably do something about it. They brought me to hospital um, and they put me through the CAT scan, even though it had cleared by the time I got to the hospital after I drank a can of Coke, which is a cure for blockages, it seems. And um, um, they said, oh, by the way, the, the good news is, the bad good news is you don't have the blockage. The bad news is you've got um, a tumor uh, that's cancerous and you, you're gonna have to have a colonoscopy and then you're gonna have to have surgery. And I took the surgery a day at a time. I had complications. I ended up in the intensive care unit at one point and they thought I wasn't gonna live. Um, after the operation, I had two up, uh, actually three operations in one, I had a hernia repaired, I had um, kidney stones zapped and I had um, the tumor removed, um, the cancerous tumor. And I just took it, people said to me, how are, you, how are you coping? And I go, well, it's a day at a time. And I think if there's any secret to my longevity, um, in AA, it's um, that one day at a time thing, one hour at a time, one. And the other thing that AA taught me is that there's a difference between pain medication, um, in my case, during my uh, uh, cancer operation and its recovery, um, it was, they gave me fentanyl. And, um, you know, I'm an addict. And I said at one point uh, to the anesthesiologist, the anesthetist, as we say, anesthetist, um, it's a good thing they don't sell out on the streets because uh, it's powerful, wonderful stuff. And she said, they do, Chuck, they do sell it on the streets. And I go, oh, no, don't tell me that. Um, but, you know, I haven't, once again, a day at a time. Um, I In the hospital, I asked them to wean me off of it. And I ended up with Panadol or um, an aspirin-like um, uh, type of thing, a Tylenol, I think, in the United States. Um, and um, uh, and I haven't had, since I got out of hospital, I haven't had a, um, any drugs. Uh, 
even though at one hospitalization I had, they gave me Endone, which is um, an opioid. And they said, just in case the, the pain arises when you're home, I got it someplace in my house and in, in the same envelope that they gave it to me. And it's been years and it's in my house in case um, of some sort of pain, but um, um, I have no interest in it. And, um, and I have no interest in alcohol. So um, some of the benefits for me um, are, you know, I've been able to be employed. I, I've been able to create employment for other people. I've, um, I, when I came to Canberra, Australia, um, having learned um, conflict resolution in the United States, uh, when I was sober in California, uh, I became an arbitrator when I came to uh, in California, the same as Judge Judy, she operates under the um, Arbitration Act. I used to arbitrate the petty claims that, um, you know, the small claims that she arbitrates, um, you know, car dings and um, landlord-tenant disputes. And uh, I created um, uh, all up and down California I, uh, in the 1970s and early 80s. I I created, um, actually in the 80s, I created a whole bunch of mediation and conflict resolution things in various um, uh, jurisdictions. Uh, I worked for Santa Clara County in San Jose where I lived for a while um, in the Human Relations Commission, which was, um, uh, um, you know, I was sober, I was able to represent um, uh, Samoan people and various others and did lots of conflict resolution. I learned um, mediation in Boston, brought it to California and um, then brought it to Australia. I set up the conflict resolution service in Canberra, which was one of the first mediation. They didn't have mediation in Australia before I came and I brought, I trained people in mediation at Sydney University uh, and various other places. And all because I was sober. The benefits that I have had, um, not only in employment, but in relationships, in my own education. Fact of the matter is that I haven't been involved with the police. I've been a jail visitor. I've worked in jails uh, as a sober person. I've um, worked in the, um, um, the jurisdictions of justice, um, worked with offenders, um, and um, I've done a, a variety of jobs in the Australian Public Service. I've already talked to you about um, being a civil marriage celebrant. I've been a justice of the peace uh, for something like 25 years, and just recently retired from that. And um, the, the state government tr um, trusted me with people's documents, with their important papers. They trusted me not to make copies of it, not to falsify documentation, to be a trusted member of the community. And so for me, the, um, the, the fact that I have more energy, the fact that I can go through cancer um, and come out on the other side supposedly cured, they check it every three months to see if there's any cancer in my blood. Um, and, and I have to wait five years to see if I'm quote cured. But as far as my alcoholism, I'm not cured. I'm just arrested a day at a time. So um, the happiness that I have, I, I 
I got to say that um, in sobriety, um, I came to Australia. I was living in Sydney, and um, I I was asked by a member of the Sydney group that I was attending of AA. And she was a minister of religion that had come from America. And as an atheist, um, she asked us in the AA group, she wasn't quite rigorously honest. She said one of the elders from her church was coming to um, from America to check up on how she was doing as a sort of missionary for her religion. And um, she said um, she wasn't doing so good but with members of AA uh, that um, do her the favor and come and fill up the church pews that um, when the elder was there, uh, checking on like a bishop or something. And I said, only if the sermon you give during the course of your service doesn't mention God. And she said, I will mention only love, Chuck, because I know that that's the power greater than yourself from your second step. And, um, uh, I said, well, my power greater than myself and the second step is actually the great spirit of compassionate love that I find in AA. I don't believe in gods and goddesses, but I believe in, in uh, love. And um, she said, well, just for you, if you come along to fill the pews uh, to make it look like I've, I've got. And so I went along and during coffee, I looked across the room and there was this beautiful woman and I, the room stopped. I couldn't hear a thing. You could, I could hear a pin drop. Everybody was talking, but I couldn't hear them. And I fell in love at first sight with um, this woman who was 12 years younger than I was. Um, and um, two weeks after I met her, she proposed marriage to me, even though she was younger than I was. Uh, it turned out that she was rich and I didn't know it. She loved sex. Um, um, more than any woman that I've ever met, and um, uh, which could have been a problem during our marriage. You have to wait a, year, a month um, in Australia to get married. So six weeks after uh, I met her, we were married. We ended up having a beautiful marriage. She died of cancer uh, at age 50. Um, I was age 62 at the time she died. And... Um, um, she um, loved the fact that I didn't drink, that I could be depended upon. Her father said, don't let Chuck know that, you're, uh, that you are actually rich. So she hid her wealth from me. Our father hid the wealth. And um, uh, it was only after she died that I realized that she um, had millions. And, um, um, and I got some of that. And um, my son got the bulk of it. And um, we had a child um, and um, I um, did a home birth. I pulled my son out of my, my wife and um, at home. And um, my son is now um, like myself, has a bit, has ADD. Um, but um, I was able to raise him without hitting him, without him ever seeing me drunk. For my 75th birthday, he gave me a, a Tesla Model 3. In um, AA, I found out that I was ADD and that answered a whole bunch of questions for me about why I was an outcast as a kid besides my terrible acne, um, why I sought solace from my loneliness and my 
out being an outlier, why I hung around other people that were um, uh, the bad kids, uh, why teachers hated me um, or you know, didn't understand me. Um, I have a bit of dyslexia, so I have trouble following directions unless people show me things. Uh, it's part of the reason that I'm talking to you on my phone rather than uh, uh, on my home computer, uh, which is a desk computer, and I, um, um, this is more comfortable for me. So um, I could go on and on, but um, I'll sort of end there. I'm, I haven't had a drink today. Um, I've got huge amounts of benefits, not only just um, physical benefits, and I just want to talk a little bit, um, Bridget, just a couple of minutes about spirituality as a humanist, as a, um, as a member of AA. I don't believe in the supernatural, but you can have spirituality without believing in the supernatural. Buddhists, Taoists, Confucians people, all of those people have spirituality without, um, and many atheists have spirituality without believing in the supernatural. I don't believe in demons or angels. I don't believe in gods and goddesses. Um, the spirituality I'm talking about is loving kindness, which is what the Buddhists call um, compassion um, or being compassionate. Uh, that to me, you can't tell me that the Dalai Lama, who says that he's an atheist and doesn't believe, even though he's a, um, a Tibetan Buddhist, um, and even though he's got all kinds of rituals in his form of Buddhism, um, he says that he's an atheist and that he doesn't believe in gods and goddesses. And that Buddha said, you know, if there is a god or goddess so far away from us and so far back in time, that that one, that, that them or they don't worry about us and we shouldn't worry about them. Um, and you can't tell me that the Dalai Lama isn't spiritual. Um, it seems to me that uh, when, when Pope Francis was recently, and who's 85, was recently asked by a cardinal, I think, in the Vatican, what do we call a good person who's an atheist? Pope Francis shot back and said, why don't we just call him a good person and leave it at that? And so, you know, for me, uh, I try to be a good person. I've, as a chaplain, I've um, um, taken care of people that are dying, that are atheists and agnostic, um, and, or that are unchurched. And um, um, they weren't worried about going to hell. They weren't um, saying Hail Marys or calling out the name of Jesus or uh, Allah or whatever. Um, they were dying and saying that that's the end. Many a scientist, um, I, I've held their hand at their bedside and um, um, both humanist and just atheist. And, um, and they had the peaceful deaths. And, you know, they, so for me, um, I don't have to have a belief in the supernatural to be spiritual, to have compassion, to have love, um, to have um, a charity where you help other people. Um, and it's all the stuff, the benefits that I found um, were the spiritual aspects of uh, the, uh, the original thing that got me into sticking to AA which is the, the promises. And I think they're all spiritual. Unselfishness, I think that's spiritual. Um, and intuitively knowing how to handle situations which used to baffle me. Well, that's that 
stuff out of the appendix, which says that appendix two, which says, what do we mean by, um, you know, the, the spiritual? And what it says is we found all these religious people have pie in the sky by and by. And what do we have? Well, in appendix two in the big book, they put it in there because they found that their, uh, their supernatural stuff did not work. Bill Wilson couldn't convert anybody uh, for his, um, um, for his um, drug-induced um, uh, hallucination in Towns Hospital, uh, his heart flash. Um, one of the things that Belladonna does, and you can look up Belladonna treatment on Belladonna in Wikipedia, is it gives you hallucinations. And that was what AA is founded upon. Bill's hallucination. He couldn't stop smoking based upon the hallucination, but he could stop drinking based upon that hallucination. And, you know, they, in the early days, they called it Bill's hot flash. It says in appendix two that we found an unsuspected resource deep within inside ourselves. And that's what I found. And uh, I'm just uh, 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 an old time as a person who says, I'll finish on this and then goes on for 20 minutes. Um, I'll finish on this. Um, my, one of my exes, when I made amends to her um, and I had to go to Alaska to, to try to do it, couldn't find her. And I went and tried to make direct amends and couldn't do it. But then I did find her through the internet and um, sent her a letter and, uh, making amends. And she sent back a letter and said, Chuck, I am so glad that you finally found yourself. And I found myself, that inner self, that unsuspected inner resource in AA. Thanks for letting me share. It's almost, a year. it's almost an hour. I didn't think I could do it, but I have, and I've left out so much. Thanks.